We open the scriptures to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. We will read verses 20 through 37. This is the word of God, beginning Luke 17, verse 20. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo, here, or lo, there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And he said unto the disciples, The days will come. When ye shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and ye shall not see it. And they shall say to you, See here, or see there. Go not after them, nor follow them. For as the lightning that lighteneth out of the one part under heaven, shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in his day. But first must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. And as it was in the days of Noe, so shall it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They did eat, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noe entered into the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise also, as it was in the days of Lot, They did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. I tell you, in that night there shall be two men in one bed, and one shall be taken and the other shall be left. Two women shall be grinding together, the one shall be taken and the other left. Two men shall be in the field, the one shall be taken And the other left. And they answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? And he said unto them, Wheresoever the body is, thither will the the eagles be gathered together. Thus far we read in the Holy Scriptures. On the basis of our Lord's words in Luke 17, the entire scripture, we consider Lord's Day 48 of the Catechism. Question 123. Which is the second petition? Thy kingdom come. That is, rule us so by thy word and spirit, that we may submit ourselves more and more to thee. Preserve and increase thy church. Destroy the works of the devil and all violence which would exalt itself against thee. And also, all wicked counsels devised against thy word, till the full perfection of thy kingdom take place, wherein thou shalt be all in all. Beloved in the Lord, one of the duties enjoined upon the Christian in this life is the duty of prayer for the king. The Apostle Paul states that in the opening verses of 1 Timothy chapter 2, where he calls upon the church to remember in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, kings and all those who are in authority. And he states the reason, the reason being that we desire of God that he use those powers that be to maintain good order, so that the church and God's people may continue to live their pilgrim life in this world 
in peace, living a life of godliness and honesty without hindrance. But if that is the case, how much more are we to pray concerning the kingdom? Kingdoms of this earth shall pass away. They will not last. And the powers that be, which are ordained of God, are ordained only for a time. There is only one kingdom which shall endure forever. The kingdom of the great king, God, and his son, Jesus Christ. How much more ought the concerns of this kingdom fill our prayers and fill the desires of our hearts and our thoughts Stand behind the tasks that we put our hands to and the things that we do in this life. So it is that Jesus teaches us now in the second petition to pray, Thy kingdom come. And the second petition for the coming of God's kingdom is the natural follower to the first petition, Hallowed be thy name. The chief end of man and the purpose of all things is the glory of God's name. But as the scriptures reveal... God is pleased to supremely glorify himself by the unfolding of his eternal counsel in time and history. And at the center of that eternal counsel, his plan is the realization of his covenant of grace and his kingdom of grace. A covenant with a chosen people that he has established in Jesus Christ, who is the king who rules over that covenant people in a glorious kingdom. God hallows his name through the coming of his kingdom. And so you can't separate God's glory from God's kingdom. And you can't separate the glorification of God's name from the earnest desire and petition for the coming of his kingdom. And so we sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus again as he speaks to us in his word, eager to learn more of how to pray. And not only that, how to orient the entire Christian life of prayer. Our lives are defined by the lifelong petition, hallowed be thy name. Likewise, the Christian life is defined by this lifelong petition, thy kingdom come. That's our theme, thy kingdom come. And in the three points, we're simply going to look at the three words that make up that petition. First, kingdom. Second, come. Third, thine. When we consider our human nature, look at ourselves as well as looking out at the world of unbelieving man, we will notice that there is a deep-seated desire in man for a kingdom. And that deep-seated desire manifests itself as a determined drive to build a kingdom and to serve a king. You can see that when we look at humankind. Everyone wants to be something. Something significant. Everyone wants to do something significant. Build something significant. Be a part of something significant. Something that lasts. Something that makes a difference. Something that does not fade and pass away like the grass that withers, the flower that fades. You see that in man. We see that in ourselves, do we not? And what that is, is a drive for kingdom. Human beings want a kingdom. And in that kingdom they want to enjoy the riches belonging to the realm of the kingdom. And they want to serve a king. The reason for that is God created man this way. God created man to be a king. God created man to have a certain kingship. And to exercise that kingship in the service of a greater king, namely his creator, his God. And you go to the opening chapter of the Bible and the second chapter of the Bible and you see that kingship drive and kingdom drive inscribed upon the nature of our first parents. 
In Genesis 2, verse 15, we're told that God took Adam and placed him in the Garden of Eden, a realm that he had created especially for Adam and Eve. And he put Adam and Eve into office. We're told that he put him in the garden to dress and to keep it. There is kingship. Adam had something significant to do there in God's creation. And then if we flip back to Genesis 1 verse 28, we read about God's mandate to Adam and Eve that they exercise dominion over the work of his hands. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion. You might put it this way, God says to Adam and Eve, I have made you my image bearers who reflect my glory. And as my image bearers, you are my office bearers in the creation. And as an office bearer, you have a position under me with a work to do in my service. You are kings under me. And you are to exercise kingship by having dominion over this creation that I have made. Caring for it. Developing it. Bringing forth the latent powers that I have created in the creation. Developing that creation and using it to the glory of my name. A kingdom. Kingship. In service to the king. That's inscribed on human nature. Now this deep-seated desire for kingdom and this determined drive to build a kingdom and to serve a king is something that has survived that cataclysmic fall of mankind. It survived that fall because it's written on our human nature. It's part of what it is to be human. We were made to be kings under God. But that deep-seated desire, that determined drive, has been utterly and totally corrupted by man's fall into sin. This because man at the fall lost the image of God and took upon himself the opposite. He became spiritually the spitting image of the devil. And having lost that image of God, fallen man then became a fallen office bearer. A fallen king. A rebel king. A king who now doesn't want to serve the king, God, but it's still written on his human nature that he must serve a king. And so he turns to the devil as his king. He turns to himself as his king. He turns to something else that draws the desires of his heart as king, and he invests himself into it, and he serves it. Fallen man still wants to be something. He wants to do something significant. Something long lasting. He wants to build a kingdom. But now because fallen man's entire nature is depraved. That kingship desire. That kingdom building drive. Is directed in the opposite direction of God. And is directed towards and invested in. The great building project of the ages. The building project that began after the fall and will continue till the second coming of Jesus Christ. The building project that we saw Cain engage in. When banished from Eden, he went to the land of Nod and there he founded the city of Enoch. He began building a kingdom for himself. The great Age-long building project that we see come to a certain head in Nimrod, the mighty hunter who led the unbelieving peoples of the world to the plains of Shinar. And there he said, let's make a name for ourselves. Let's build a kingdom. Let's build a tower that reaches up to heaven. There is the kingdom drive of man corrupted and misdirected towards sin. It's the age-long building project that in the last days will culminate in the rise of Antichrist and his unification of all of the nations of the world is one kingdom when it will seem as though for a moment Satan's plan has been accomplished before the Lord of glory returns and casts down that Antichrist, destroys him with the spirit of his mouth and the brightness of his coming. That stands now at the center of human history. 
There is an age-long building project going on. It's man's building project. It takes many different forms in different lands and different cultures. But it has the same origin. The same spiritual origin. The corrupted desire of fallen man's heart. And the corrupted drive to build a kingdom that's going to last. To serve a king. Not God the king. But man himself. A kingdom of man. Kingdom that takes Romans 11 verse 36 and flips it on its head. A kingdom that is of man, through man, and to man. A kingdom without God. And this is what fallen man preoccupies himself with. From the lowliest of common persons to the mightiest emperor. Everyone is working to build a kingdom, whether it's cutting out a little sphere in their own life over which they have dominion and in which they can pursue their own pleasure, or whether it's that emperor who has carved out a vast empire and sits like a king ruling over millions, a kingdom of man, through man, and unto the glory of man. That's the vision. That motivates fallen man throughout the ages. It's the vision that stands at the heart of unbelieving culture. Our own culture today. Man wants a kingdom. But not with God. A kingdom ruled not by God's law. But ruled by the desires and the fancies of men. Ruled after the imaginations of man's own heart. Man dreams of having a longer and a happier life. Man dreams of deciding for himself what is good and evil, of having wealth and prosperity, of eliminating warfare, sickness, and poverty. And he thinks he can achieve this by his own mettle, by his own might. And there's this drive that moves human progress forward. All of man's resources are thrown into it. His philosophy, his science, his medicine, his literature are all at heart. Motivated by this. Build a kingdom. Build a kingdom. It's in his politics. It's in his music. It's in his art. You see this desire. This drive. To build a kingdom of man. For man. And unto man. And it's utter folly. As man builds the kingdom of the devil. He builds his own ruin. He plunges himself towards ruin. Because he wars against the king of heaven and earth. He wars against the creator. He wars against the God who is king. And whose kingdom alone shall endure forever. That's the lostness of fallen man. But now, wonder of wonders. God's glorious grace. There is a kingdom. That's different. There is the kingdom of God. And that stands at the center of the gospel message recorded in the scriptures. God reveals his kingdom. And wonder of wonders, God's grace. He is pleased to take certain persons that he has chosen to himself. Out of this miserable ruin of father Adam. Out of this futile work of building a kingdom of man through man and to man. Which will end in destruction. He is pleased to gather his people into His kingdom. And that's the grand subject of the second petition. Jesus sets before us a wonderful gospel reality. That there is this kingdom. The kingdom of God. And this kingdom of God. Not made by human hands. Is the kingdom. The only kingdom. That can truly satisfy that deep seated desire. Inscribed upon our nature. For a kingdom and for a king. Kingdom of God, a wonder of grace. Kingdom which exists for the glory of his name. But a kingdom which God wills to gather us into. That we might see his glory. And in a creaturely measure partake of his glory. And all the joys and the riches and the pleasures of his glory. As the one only true God. The God of all grace. Jesus in teaching us the second petition. Sets God's kingdom before us. 
over against all of the kingdoms of man, over against all of the feudal kingdom building efforts of man, there is God's kingdom. What is that kingdom? We need to talk about that and understand that before we get to the heart of the petition, which is praying for this kingdom to come. What is God's kingdom in distinction from the kingdoms of men? The kingdom of God is an expansive concept in Scripture. Expansive. There's a lot of territory to cover here, but let's venture to set forth a simple yet fairly comprehensive definition of the kingdom and look at its parts to give us or refresh us in an understanding of what this wonder is, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God can be defined this way. The kingdom of God is King Jesus' rule of grace in the hearts and over the lives of his redeemed people through his word and spirit Which rule is destined to embrace all of creation in its grasp? Again, the kingdom of God is King Jesus' rule of grace in the hearts and over the lives of his redeemed people. Through his word and spirit, which rule is destined to gather the realm of all of creation into its embrace? Let's break down that definition. First, we start with the most fundamental element of any kingdom. A kingdom has a king. The ruler of the kingdom. And the very expression that occurs in scripture so often, kingdom of God, tells us who that king is. Not man, but God. Kingdom of God. And there's the origin too. It is the kingdom that is of God, through God, and unto God. It is a kingdom that God conceived in his eternal counsel. It is a kingdom that belongs to him. It is of him. It comes from him. And it is through him in that it is his work alone which establishes and realizes this kingdom. And it is unto him in that this kingdom is for his glory. God is king. The triune God is king. And the triune God rules as king through his incarnate son, Jesus Christ, whom he has exalted and seated at his right hand and to whom he has given all power and authority in heaven and in earth. Jesus is the king. And Jesus is the king in a special way to us, his people. He is the promised Messiah king, the savior king, the one foretold throughout the scriptures, the king who would be David's royal seed, who would sit on David's royal throne, the king who would be the lamb. And because of his work as the lamb, dying for his people, he would be highly exalted to the throne of heaven and given a name above every name, that at the name of King Jesus, every knee should bow. That's the king of God's kingdom. The triune God who rules through the exalted, incarnate Christ seated at his right hand. That in the first place. But now a kingdom consists of subjects. That's the next most fundamental element of a kingdom. A king rules over people, subjects, servants, citizens of his kingdom, persons who are under his authority and in a sense belong to him. And so it is with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a rule of King Jesus, a gracious rule over his elect people, those whom the king chose and in time calls to himself to be the citizens of his kingdom. Of course, God is king as creator. He made all things. But when we're talking about the kingdom of God, we're talking about a special rule of God. We're not talking about his rule of omnipotence. The rule of his almighty power by which he governs and upholds all things. But we're talking about the rule of his grace. Rule in which there is a special love and favor of the king for those whom he rules. God the king. Jesus the king. Rules graciously over his people. His people who are his elect. 
whom he has by his grace translated out of the kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light. Because they weren't born in his kingdom. Nobody is born naturally into the kingdom of God. Due to the fall of father Adam, all his posterity, all of his descendants, you and me, are born dead in sin. That means we're born into the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan. The only way you get into the kingdom of God is by the wonder of grace. The wonder of grace by which Jesus Christ gives you new birth. A new spiritual birth by the Spirit. What we call regeneration. King Jesus takes his own life and and plants it as a seed in your heart. So that in the innermost part of your being, you are spiritually taken out of darkness and brought into light and made a new creature in Christ. You're made a subject and a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You're made that by the work of the king himself. King Jesus, who's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament kings that were faint pictures of him. Think of David, the great warrior king who defeated the enemies of God's people. That's who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is our great warrior king who stormed the kingdom of darkness and took us into the captivity of his grace, not to be chained as his slaves, but to be given the liberty of sons and daughters, the joyous privilege to be servants and friends of his in his own house and kingdom. Our warrior King Jesus Christ has won us from the kingdom of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of light. And as the fulfillment of King Solomon, the king of peace, he speaks peace to us in his kingdom. He lavishes upon us the prosperity of all of the riches of his grace. We're citizens of the kingdom through Christ's gracious work on the cross. And that's why we included redemption in our definition Of the kingdom. The kingdom is Jesus rule of grace. In the hearts and over the lives of his redeemed people. That's how we came into his possession. And let's not fail to see how beautiful that is. Here the kingdom of God is so different from every other kingdom. We are bound to our king. By an unbreakable bond of his own divine love for us. He sought us and he bought us at the highest price. His own precious blood were citizens in this kingdom because the king himself gave his life for us. How different from the kings of the world and the kingdoms of the world that exist for man and for man's power and for man's glory in which rule is exercised through tyranny, through oppression, through power from the top down. The kingdom of God is the rule by Almighty God, but rule in the most wonderful way, the sweet rule of His grace over redeemed sinners whom He has taken for His own. The realm of this kingdom of God is our hearts and lives. Often when we think of a realm, we think of a territory, a land. But first and foremost, the kingdom of God is the rule of Jesus Christ over our hearts and lives. It's an inward rule. And that comes out especially in Luke 17, verses 20 and 21, which are very important verses, fundamental for understanding the kingdom. There, Jesus, in answer to the Pharisees, who were demanding of him, where's the kingdom of God? You keep preaching about the kingdom of God, but where is it? Jesus says to them, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. What that word observation means is the kingdom of God in its coming is not something you can see with the eye. It's not something perceptible and readily apprehended by the senses. It comes not with observation. Why? Verse 21. Neither shall they say, lo here or lo there. You can't say that, look over there in that institution. There's the kingdom of God. 
You can't say, look, over in that country, this plot of land, that's the kingdom of God. Rather, Jesus goes on to say, behold, the kingdom of God is within you. At its essence, the kingdom of God is Jesus' spiritual rule of grace over your heart and over your life. When Christ, by his spirit, gave you that new birth, he set his throne in your heart. And from the throne set in your heart, he exercises governance over you. And the means of his governance is his word and his spirit. His word, which is his royal law that directs you in how to live of him, through him, and to him. And his Holy Spirit that dwells in you is the great applier of that word. The Spirit is the one who makes the word effective, grafting it into your heart and mine, so that that word is a power to change us, to direct us, to guide us to the glory of God our King. Finally, let's notice the last part of our definition. That Christ's rule of grace is destined to gather the whole realm of creation into its embrace. By saying that, we don't mean that there's going to be universal salvation in the end, that every human being shall inherit glory. We know that's not the case. The scriptures make clear that the reprobate wicked will justly perish in hell for their sins. But rather, what we mean is this. The entire created order, heaven and earth, this universe will be gathered into the kingdom of God when that kingdom is fully realized. Christ's kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. It's not an earthly institution. It's not a plot of ground. Jesus says, you can't say, look, right here is the kingdom of God. But as the the kingdom comes, it is destined to sweep into its embrace all of God's creation. That's why Romans 8 verse 19 tells us that the creature, that is creation, has earnest expectation and waits for the manifestation of the sons of God. Why? Because, as the Apostle Paul goes on to say in Romans 8.21, the creation shall be delivered into the glorious liberty of the children of God. That's the setting of the kingdom made perfect. The new heavens and the new earth wherein righteousness doth dwell, wherein that deep-seated desire and drive for kingdom and to serve a king will be fully and most richly fulfilled. Because God will be all in all, king exalted over all, ruling through Emmanuel, seated at his right hand, and we, his redeemed people, shall inherit the earth. Literally, inherit the earth, inherit the creation as kings under Jesus Christ. We shall live in and rule over that new Eden, far more glorious and better than the first Eden into which God placed Adam and Eve as his kings. That's the end of salvation. What a glorious end. Our redemption drives towards kingdom. We shall inherit the kingdom. And in that kingdom, we shall serve our king. And that above all is what satisfies the human soul. That's what we have been made for. To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And we glorify him and enjoy him by serving him as our king. That's the kingdom of God in brief. Well, now, with that understanding of the kingdom of God, set in contrast to the kingdoms of men, we're ready to look at the petition itself. Jesus teaches us to pray concerning this kingdom. And he teaches us to pray one potent verb. Come. Come. And that potent verb expresses all of the renewed desire of the child of God. It captures that deep drive of the child of God that is now redirected by the grace of God towards the kingdom of God. It expresses it all. Come, let the kingdom of God come. 
No more of the kingdoms of men. No more of the folly of building a kingdom of man, through man, and unto men. Come, let the kingdom of God come. All of its glory, all of its richness. When we pray, thy kingdom come, as Jesus taught us, what we're saying is, Father, let thy kingdom be more and more realized. Yes, that kingdom is an established and accomplished fact. The kingdom has been established through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. But the fullness of that kingdom still has to come. The final perfection. And throughout what remains of covenant history, God is unfolding His counsel, realizing that kingdom until we reach the perfection proposed to us in the life to come, in the new heavens and the new earth. And the earnest cry of the child of God is, Thy kingdom come. Let it come more and more. Let Thy kingdom come more and more. Let's now break that down and see what it is exactly we're praying for when we say, let thy kingdom come more and more, thy kingdom come. We're going to see that thy kingdom come is an individual prayer and a communal prayer. And we're going to see that the individual's prayer is for the increase and the preservation of the kingdom. And the communal prayer is for the increase and preservation of the kingdom. If you look at the Lord's Day, that's what is spoken about. You see How there is an individual prayer for the kingdom coming in me personally. And you see there is a prayer for the kingdom coming in the church. So let's look at those parts of the petition. Starting with the individual. The second petition is a personal petition. And you and I are taught to pray it personally. It's a petition of the citizen of the kingdom. It's his sincere desire that his Redeemer King increase, preserve, and perfect the kingdom in his own heart and life. That's where answer 123 begins. Thy kingdom come, that is, rule us. It's your petition and mine. Rule me. Soul by thy word and spirit that, make it personal, I may submit myself more and more to thee. It's a petition for the sovereign extension of Christ's rule of grace in my heart and over my life. So that that sovereign extension reaches as far as I reach, as far as my life goes, and leaves nothing untouched, so that the rule of Christ's grace grasps every part of me and every aspect of my life and directs it to the glory of my God. It's a prayer. Let thy royal power Issue forth and possess my whole being. It is a prayer for the unceasing work of the Spirit in my heart. Applying the word of the King more and more to me. So that Christ is formed in me. And I am conformed to Christ. Thy kingdom come. Is that your desire? Is that my desire? Is that what we really want? For the kingdom to come in us. So that I am taken into the fuller possession of my Lord. So that his ownership of me is manifest. So that these hands and everything they do serve him. And this mind and the meditations of this heart are all pleasing and acceptable in His sight? Do we want that? Do we pray for that? For a soft and pliable heart? For ears to hear His Word? For growth in salvation? That's what we're praying for when we say, Thy kingdom come in me. Extend, O Lord, Thy rule of grace in my heart and over my life. 
So that as thy rule of grace extends over me, I bring forth fruit. And I become more and more willing to submit to thy rule. So that I become more active and joyful in serving thee as my king. That glorifies God. God has called us out of darkness to be his subjects, his citizens, so that we may serve him as our king. And he wants that service. He wants conscious, willing, active service. That's what he made us for. If he wanted more glory, the kind of which the rocks and the trees give him, he would have made us rocks and trees, but he didn't. He made us conscious, moral, rational creatures so that from the heart and with the mouth and with our will and with all our being we may intentionally submit ourselves to his rule, praise him and glorify him so that our desires may harmonize with his and our obedience may be glad and willing and free. That's our prayer. The second petition, Father, Work in me by thy grace so that more and more I willingly, gladly submit myself to thy rule. And when this happens, that kingdom which comes without observation, in a way becomes observable in the life of the believer. It's observed in faith working by love. It's observed in a life that becomes a garden of the fruits of the Spirit. It's observed in warfare waged against sin in my life. It's observed in righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's observed in works of charity for the neighbor. It's observed in suffering for Christ's sake. The kingdom which comes without observation, the kingdom which is within you, does show itself. The reign of grace manifests itself. In the Christian life. When the kingdom comes in you. Everything's different. People see it. And you start to say. Crazy things. Crazy in the world's eyes. Crazy things like. I count all things but loss. For the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord. And the world says what are you talking about? The believer knows his kingdom. His kingdom has come in me. You say crazy things like. To live is Christ. To die is gain. It's the kingdom come. In my heart. In my life. So that. That deep seated desire. That drive for kingdom and to serve a king. Finds fulfillment. Him. So. On an individual level. Thy kingdom come means. Extend thy rule of grace in me. Increase that rule of grace. But it's also a prayer individually for preservation. We've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness. But we know very well the kingdom of darkness wants us back. And all our life long we face plots and schemes of Satan himself and the minions of the kingdom of darkness, and our own sinful flesh to drag us back into that kingdom we've been delivered from. That's temptation. That's the devil's weapon to try to allure the citizens of God's kingdom back into the old ways of the kingdom of darkness. Redemption, which brought us into Christ's kingdom, has made us mortal enemies again of the devil and his kingdom. And now we are at war with them. And we face all of that violence described in the catechism. The violence of schemes and plots that exalt themselves against God and His holy word. The violence of secular philosophy. The violence of social pressure. The violence of persecution. And the violence of our own flesh which wants to go back to that old Kingdom, And so when we are taught to pray thy kingdom come, we are taught to pray it in the consciousness of our own weakness and desperate need of preservation. We still need our warrior king to protect us. We still need David's greater son to keep us safe. He's won us for himself. He's taken us out of the kingdom of darkness, but we need his preservation. We pray for it. Preserve me in that kingdom. Thwart the designs of my enemies. Give me light to see through their lies. Strength to resist. Preserve me in thy 
kingdom until the perfection of it take place. And the good work thou hast begun in me is finished. And I in righteousness at last thy glorious face shall see. And then, then I shall be satisfied. Beloved, let us pray it. Pray it from the heart, personally. Thy kingdom come. Now the second part of this petition. It's a communal prayer as well. Just like all of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, we don't, prayer, we don't pray only for ourselves, but we pray for the church. And so when we ask, Thy kingdom come, we pray, as the Catechism explains to us, that God would Preserve and increase his church. Said a moment ago that the kingdom which comes without observation does manifest itself. You can say it becomes observable in the lives of believers. And so too, in the church, the gathering of God's people, there the reality of the kingdom can be seen. Can be seen. Jesus teaches that the kingdom is not just within you personally, but is found in the gathering of believers. And that's clear from verse 21 of Luke 17. It's clear by the word you that he uses. The kingdom of God is within you. And you there is not singular, but plural. But plural. The kingdom comes. When Jesus extends his rule of grace over the hearts and lives of his people. But that extension of the rule of grace over the hearts and lives of his people gathers those people together. The church is the gathering of those in whose hearts the kingdom has come. The church is the spirit assembled body of the king. The church is the citizenry of the kingdom of heaven. On pilgrimage through this world to the inheritance prepared for her. And so we must stand against that common doctrinal error of our day that wants to divorce kingdom and church. That's done in the interest of having Christians go out and be agents of renewal in culture and in society. Many in our day would say the kingdom comes when you go and you redeem movies. And you go and you redeem the secular music of the world. You get your hands in everything that man is doing. And that's the coming of the kingdom. No. Coming of the kingdom is the rule of grace in the heart of believers. And that rule of grace gathers believers together in the church. Our catechism connects church and kingdom so very closely together. And so when we pray thy kingdom come, we pray in the first place communally, increase thy church. So rule thy church by thy word and spirit that she grows in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That she comes more and more into spiritual maturity. That she's faithful in the work thou hast given her to do. Grant, O Lord, that thy royal law alone, thy word be the sole standard for all her life and work. Increase thy church in her fruitfulness. Thy kingdom come. Let there not be spiritual stagnation among thy people. Growth. Fruitfulness. Increase her numerically too. Gather thy elect from the four corners of the earth. Build thy church, O Lord, so that the kingdom may come. Because the final perfection of that kingdom only comes when all the elect are gathered and the Lord Jesus returns. And so embedded in the sixth, or rather embedded in the second petition, is a prayer for evangelism, a prayer for missions. Embedded in the second petition is the prayer with which the Bible ends. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly, thy kingdom come. Increase thy church and preserve thy church. Part of that preservation means the destruction of the kingdom of darkness. Catechism focuses on that. 
the destruction of Satan's designs against the church, and all of the violence that exalts itself against the church. The church must be humble. We're weak. We're fallible. We're faulty. We need the preservation of our king. Our king. Till perfection. When the church is made complete, Christ comes again. The church inherits the new heavens and the new earth. That's the petition, thy kingdom come. Let's for a moment look at the last word, thy or thine. Thy kingdom come. Here, we want to make one personal application for each of us as believers. Is this your drive in life? Young people, you have your life before you. Choices to make. Different paths you can go down. What's your drive in life? Let it be this petition. Thy kingdom come. That's what I want my life to be about. I want his kingdom. And I want to serve my king even now. Not the kingdoms of the world. Not all of the kingdom building efforts of the world. Oh, there's so many. And they can be so attractive. The kingdoms of this world dangle all sorts of pleasures in front of us and say, come build with us and we will give you pleasure. We will give you paradise. We will give you salvation. But it's all a lie. Thy kingdom. Not my kingdom. Not man's kingdom. No other kingdom. Thy kingdom come. Let there be emotion and fervor in those words as we pray them. And let those words define our life. Just like the first petition. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Let's pray this petition. And as we pray it, renounce all our own kingdom building efforts. And yield our total, unswerving, absolute allegiance to Jesus Christ. That's life. That's purpose. That's fulfilling. The world and its kingdoms are empty and can give you nothing but eventual misery and ruin. Grace has given us the riches of the kingdom of God. That thrills the heart. Seek ye first His kingdom and its righteousness. Thine is the kingdom. You don't have to wait till the end of the prayer to pray that doxology. Embedded in the second petition is the confidence we find in that doxology. Thine is the kingdom. And that's the confidence with which we pray it. Thy kingdom come, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Faithful God and Heavenly Father, give us the grace to seek first thy kingdom and to pray this petition with all sincerity, thy kingdom come, to forsake every earthly kingdom-building effort and every false king and God that competes for the affections of our hearts and strengthen us to yield our total allegiance to King Jesus. And his kingdom. We ask it in his name. Amen.